Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 181, recorded on March 21st, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. We start this week with Ubuntu Touch. And while we don't often cover individual releases, OTA 16 is noteworthy for several reasons. Get this, Wes. Nearly four years ago, almost exactly just a couple of weeks from now, that Canonical dropped Ubuntu Touch and just, it was essentially a code drop. And then that became an independent project. I can't believe it's been four years already. But also noteworthy right now is there's some new fresh hardware landing in the hands of Ubuntu Touch users, including the new Volophone, which is now actually shipping and can absolutely run Ubuntu Touch. Well, with all this excitement, Dalton Durst joined us to discuss the release. And it sounds like new hardware or not, there's something for everyone. If you're a longtime user of Ubuntu Touch, this is the release where you say, huh, I didn't notice a lot, but for some reason this feels better. <laughs> so with the news of this new release itself, the new hardware, and a lot more, we asked, why is the project calling this their second biggest release yet? This is the second largest release ever because a fourth, a quarter of all of the packages that make up Ubuntu Touch changed. But at the same time, you're going to download this release. You're an Ubuntu Touch user. You download like 83 megabytes of changes, which for a 350 megabyte install is uh, kind of big. Uh, and you say, well, what the heck changed here? And you would think that'd be a bad thing. But really, that we'd feel successful if you said that. Because this is the release where we upgraded from Qt 5.9 to Qt 5.12, which required changing, it feels like, everything. <laughs> I bet. I think, I think, if I recall, it also kind of gets you in line for eventually the transition from 16.04 base to an Ubuntu 20.04 base. Exactly. So that's, that's where we're looking right now is we got to get off 16.04. Of course, elephant in the room is that Ubuntu 16.04 is almost out of mainstream support next month. Um, we're going to keep shipping a few images, a few updates using 16.04, but our focus is on moving all of our software to 20.04 so that we can successfully release Ubuntu Touch. And uh, hopefully no one notices the difference. Yeah. That's the funny thing you and I were talking about before we sat down to record is it, it's kind of a success if you migrate from 16.04 to 20.04 and the end user can't really tell. But with iOS or Android, it's it's a flagship marketing event with an entirely new UI sometimes dropped in. It's a it's a much different beast. Yeah, it's um, an interesting difference between how you can develop an open source versus, you know, developing for marketing sometimes. You right. Know, you say that you're, you say that you're an agile shop and you can make changes iter iteratively, but mm, that just doesn't happen sometimes. <laughs> I think I'd rather get the innovation as the developers complete it rather than waiting for a keynote up on a stage uh, on some arbitrary date. But there's a couple of other new things I've noticed that have landed in here. The Morph browser is the default browser, and it received a bunch of great upgrades this cycle. So we made changes to the down way the downloads work so now when you download a file you get a recent downloads page that shows you you know what's going on what's about to finish what has finished um more in line with other browsers and certainly well not quite with other mobile browsers but so it's unique to us there yeah that's pretty nice that is that is really great um all right so then there was another thing you were talking about and that was getting new applications 
onto Ubuntu Touch. Uh, that has been that has been made a little bit easier this cycle. Yeah, so Clickable has been getting iterative improvements. Well, basically, it feels like since forever. Clickable is our all-in-one, one-stop shop tool for developing Ubuntu Touch apps. So you can create new applications with it, build your applications, and even deploy them to the store, all using Clickable. And in recent updates, we got a new feature called Clickable IDE which allows you to run, well, basically random graphical applications, such as a full IDE for developing Ubuntu Touch applications, like Cute Creator. So how do I do that? Yeah, you can go to clickable-ut.dev to get the information on how to get started using Clickable. Super easy to install. We also got some new devices in, a, in, re, in recent times. Uh, Wes and I have had our eye on the Pixel 3a, and rumor has it you have some hands-on experience with that one. Yeah, I got a Pixel 3a XL, and uh, secret, secret, you can just tell the installer, oh yeah, don't worry, this is actually a 3a XL. We're working on that, but uh, for now you can just install the 3a image on the XL, and it's a little, things are a little big, but it works. But it's, uh, it is a fast device, even compared to everything else that we have, uh, which is very interesting and fun to use. Hi, Alfred, I know you're listening. Thanks for making it. Uh, <laughs> So that's a great one that I think a lot of people have and might be interested in learning about. But you can also go to devices.ubuntu-touch.io to see if your device is supported because we've got a lot of them out there right now. Yeah, the 3A seems like a great one to try on. I also saw the Volaphone. Yes, the Volaphone has landed in people's hands. It is a device that some SKUs have shipped with Ubuntu Touch pre-installed, uh, which... Uh, like the Pinephone before, it is just a really exciting experience and a little nerve-wracking. Oh boy, is the image going to work? Is everything situated? And it just, it feels so good when people start getting them in their hands and they say, man, this is great. Hey, I've got some feedback for you. It's just, it's a great experience every time. And then last but not least, tell me a little bit about what happens now. Work begins on OTA 17, which starts, I would imagine, more work continuing the transition to 2004. Yes. So uh, we're working on bringing things together uh, between, we have a few different branches kind of of Ubuntu touch development right now. Uh, the standard Android 9 and mainline uh, for different types of devices. So we're trying to bring all of those back together so that they all go on to Ubuntu 2004 in one big group. And we don't need to deal with all this different branching stuff. Um, but we've also got people working to improve our infrastructure and how we do releases so that we can make 2004 as smooth as possible. Thanks to Dalton for getting us up to date. And that URL to check if your device is compatible is devices.ubuntu-touch.io. There's more details in their recent Ubuntu Touch Q&A as well. Of course, we'll have that linked in the show notes. Linux.ting.com. This is how I do mobile, and it's never been a better time to try out Ting. And if you're a budget-minded individual, check out Ting's Set 5 plan. For just $25 a month, you get unlimited talk and text. You get 5 gigabytes of LTE or 5G data, or all the data can be used as a hotspot. You get nationwide LTE coverage and 5G where it's available for no contract. At $25, Really, to make that work, all you'd have to do is sync your music and your podcast before you hit the road, and you can pretty much make that work and have wireless for $25 a month. But if you need two gigs or you need a lot more than that, 
there's a perfect Ting plan for you. Every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service, the best in the business, and their nationwide access to networks. I personally have been relying more on the Verizon network as time goes on, but I've been a Ting customer forever, so I can tell you there is real benefit in multi-network coverage with just one company to interface and manage it all. But just go to linux.ting.com to check your current phone because with all those different networks, your phone is likely going to work. And if you go to linux.ting.com, you get $25 in credit. And it's simple. The process is easy. They have a really easy, quick UI to check your phone. And when everything checks out, they just send you a SIM card. You pop that in your existing phone and you're cutting your phone bill in half or more, right? It's never been easier either with Ting's new plans. They have some great prices now. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here right now. Go see how much you could save and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. There's never been a better time to try Ting Mobile. Bring your phone, get $25 off, and support the show. Choose smarter. Choose Ting Mobile. linux.ting.com. Gnome 40 is right around the corner with the release candidate shipping last week and the official Gnome 40 debut on track for this week. And as you might expect with a major release, there's going to be a few bumps. To try to smooth things out, though, Sri Ramakrishna has authored a blog post preparing extension developers for porting their code to Gnome 40. Extension developers, there's a bit of PSA also in here for regular Gnome end users. We'll get to all of that. There's just been significant changes in Gnome Shell and specifically in the way that the overview function works. And so the team wanted people to understand there are some changes that are likely going to, well, there are some changes, mandatory, to make extensions work in Gnome 40. To help with those updates, community member Just Perfection has created a porting guide that you can use to learn how to modify your extension to work with the GNOME 40 shell release. Because of the amount of changes and the fact that some distros for now are just going to stick with GNOME 3.38, the GNOME project has decided to enforce version checking again with extensions. This is something that they used to do. It's been off for a while. And GNOME 40 shell will check to make sure that the extension has implicitly said it is compatible with 40 which means the developers will have to go in and update their extension to say, yes, I'm compatible, even if no other changes are required. The end result means that as an end user, right now or soon after GNOME 40's release, when you go to the GNOME extensions website, there's not a lot listed there, although just about one or two get added every single day during the development cycle right now. But there won't be a lot. Some of your favorite extensions will not yet be updated because there is this implicit requirement that they at least go in and say it's compatible with 40, if not fix something to make it work with 40. So you're going to see limited extensions around GNOME 40's release. But this is it's nice to see the project trying to communicate this and smooth those bumps out and prepare the way for GNOME 40 extensions and sort of set the expectations for both developers and for end users, which I think is a step up from the way things used to be with extensions. This seems like a nice improvement here. I hope this is a trend that continues and we see a little more back and forth between the extension development community and changes coming upstream from GNOME. I mean, it's always a little unfortunate when there's there's breaking changes, but in this world, in the desktop space, we kind of need that if we're going to advance. And I don't think any of us are really happy with the status quo of extension. So maybe there'll be better integration with CI testing systems. I think there's also some efforts around, you know, GNOME OS and boxes to make testing these things easier so that there are more paths people can get out ahead of this release and hopefully make all of our favorite extensions actually work. It's positive to see the team 
actually considering ways to automate extension integration testing and to give that information back to developers while at the same time. So that's like a technical thing they're actually trying to solve, right? Good to see that. But while at the same time, they're also trying to create a community space for extension developers to communicate directly with each other and share ideas. Uh, and they've been laying the groundwork for that for about a year now, close to it. And I think those things combined with this implicit attempt to smooth these transition bumps out with a transition guide and a blog post that draws attention to it is a much more aggressive strategy at making the extension experience better on GNOME Shell without fundamentally re-architecting the way GNOME Shell does extensions. They're trying to get a lot of the benefits of uh, areas you can improve without having to address that core problem. And I actually think it's a pretty clever strategy. Yeah, well, I don't know that that, unfortunately, the underpinnings will be able to change anytime soon. And I think there's always going to be a certain amount of decoupling that extensions have, right? They are third party, they're independently developed, they're developed on their own timelines and tracks. But if you can make that tooling so that if you do have time, if it is maintained, if you make it easy from this, the get-go and acknowledge, yeah, we're breaking your stuff, but here's how to keep up to date. You know, I've seen it argued a lot that GNOME Shell should have a stable API that extensions can use. Uh, it, you know, it, Plasma has something similar to that. But the counter argument that I've seen to that is, yeah, okay, maybe there's a place for some of that. But oftentimes, extensions are being developed more on the edges, on the new features of GNOME that haven't really stabilized yet, that don't wouldn't have an API yet anyways. That's often where extension developers are kind of pushing the edge and and, and kind of monkeying with stuff that you wouldn't typically consider stable yet. And I think that was an interesting argument for there is a place to let extension developers innovate where a very static, stable API would be beneficial, but perhaps somewhat limiting. So there, it's not that it's not without merit. It's just that there is also benefits to the way it works now. And when you're making a stable API, you, you want it to work, right? Because you're going to hopefully not break that again. It will be set in stone. So I do hope that GNOME can get there or get to a similar place, but got to figure it out first. Well, one of the other things the community is getting figured out right now is how the heck we're going to use legacy X11-only applications in our bright Wayland-only future. And it seems there's an important update in that regard. This week marked the inaugural release of XWayland 21.1. XWayland, of course, is an X server that runs inside Wayland and provides backwards compatibility for those legacy X apps that just never got updates to use Wayland. Yeah, there could be some classics that never will see any updates, and we're going to want to keep those around. But there's like a big elephant in the room here. XORG itself really isn't getting much love, and no one's really stepping up for the next version to get released, and it's now long overdue for an update, so Red Hat engineers have devised a plan for standalone XWayland releases that are separated from the rest of the Xorg server codebase to at least get the updated X11 client on Wayland support out to end users. This fix, or I guess you could say solution, is something that Fedora may actually ship soon in version 34, and one that Ubuntu even has an eye on for future integration with their distro. This really seems like a sign of the times for X11, and perhaps its next and last chapter? I don't know, but with no plans for another release. And most of the work that is being done happening on X-Wayland anyway, at, at least a big chunk, before long, I think we might start thinking of this as the X-Wayland project rather than X-Org. 
linode.com slash land. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. And of course, support the show. Yeah, $100. You can really try out Linode. They make cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. They are the largest independent cloud computing provider, and they make it easy to get your idea online fast. No matter what skill level you are at or what technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. If you need a personal web server, a blog or a portfolio, maybe a game server or a VPN, Linode has you covered. And if you need the scale for a business application or something that goes viral, they can handle that as well. They have systems that reliably serve millions of visitors all the time. But unlike entry-level hosting services that lock you into their platform, Linode gives you full back-end access to customize and control the server to fit your needs. Linode has a lot of rigs to choose from. And did you know that some of those rigs have dedicated AMD Epic processors? Cloud Spectator did a recent survey of the different providers, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, Alibaba, DigitalOcean, and of course, Linode. They looked at all of them, and guess what? The paper they released shows it. Linode is fast. Linode is super fast for database use. They're super fast CPUs that are a notch above everybody else's. Their AMD systems really scream. And additionally, which is just as important, not only are they high performance, but Cloud Spectator study shows they are consistently high performers as well. I think that matters a lot. Linode has a lot to choose from, from $5 rigs to custom super machines. So that $100 credit will get you far and let you really try it out. Go see why they are our cloud provider. Everything we've built for JB 3.0 is hosted on Linode. Go see why. Linode.com slash LAN. For years now, we've been watching and waiting as Google has gradually developed their Fuchsia operating system from the ground up. Now, evidence has appeared pointing to Google's Fuchsia OS getting its first and second proper release. Despite not running on Linux, Google has also recently unveiled a proposal for how Fuchsia could still run apps written for Linux platforms, including Android applications, while still maintaining security and safety. We talked about that recently, but now what we're seeing is it looks like there's going to be another way besides just having to go get all the source code and build it for yourself, but actual real releases. The only release the Fuchsia's had so far have been ones that have been released internally to Google staff, but now it looks like those of us in the public could get our hands on it. At the end of January, a new branch was created in the Fuchsia project entitled Releases slash F1. Over the past few months, a few dozen code changes have been selectively added to this F1 branch, all of them coming from the main branch. This is the same process that's happened before all the other previous Fuchsia internal releases, so it seems like something's up. Yeah, you're going to have F1, and then you'll have an F2 branch, and then an F3 branch, and these are the final getting ready to go releases that we're going to see hit the public. I mean... I'm not particularly looking forward to loading Fuchsia up in the emulator and giving it a go, but part of me is just, I'm just so looking forward to finally getting it out there so we can see what it is, see what it's capable of, and get an idea of where it fits in the ecosystem, and just get answers to some of the questions we've had about Fuchsia for a long time. I think you're saying you want to know what Linux is up against. That's exactly what I want to know. Well, here's what you can probably expect. We know Google has a pattern of milestone releases, They've already released F1 and are working on F2 right now. 
there seems to be about six weeks or so between these releases, and actually, they're already tagging some things for F3. Hmm, I'm no Googler, but I just, I feel like the sooner I know about this, the better. I, I, I'm hoping maybe we'll hear more about Google's intentions with Fuchsia at Google I.O. 2021. Maybe. I mean, that might actually be a long shot. It may happen. We'll see. But I know you, and you probably just want to know if you can run it on your Raspberry Pi. And you might just be installing it with the Raspberry Pi Imager, which has just had a new release with some nice additions for power users. The biggest new feature is the release of a hidden advanced options panel. Just press Control-Shift-X, and you can change some things about the OS you're about to flash. What can you change? Well, first off, you can enable SSH right there out of the box, set up the default hostname, configure Wi-Fi, or some more fiddly bits like disabling overscan or setting the, setting the right time zone. Oh, it's so good to see this because headless is such a common use case for a Raspberry Pi. And these are things right out of the gate that you need to set up. And you're either setting up a keyboard and a monitor temporarily to turn this stuff on, or you know how to change the file on the default image to enable SSH. But either way, it's it's cumbersome. It's manual, and it's just so cool to see it built into the imager. Also really happy to see that they have now integrated in MVME drives as a target device. So that's that's really handy because you and I have switched to a workflow where we use those to boot these devices because it's much faster. It's nice to see them add some features aimed at advanced users for a change. I don't really use the Pi imager much myself, but I'd love to see other imagers like Etcher get inspired by these features. Well, that sounds nice, but I think what we really need is a cross-distro standard, because right now there's a bunch of OSs that have something similar. You can drop config files or a file name, the, the right thing in a certain directory, say, but they all do it a little bit differently, and most of them aren't nearly this discoverable or easy to use. You're right, of course, Wes. Something every distro bought into would, would really work. You know, Sounds like a problem for SystemD to solve. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. But you know, there is a lot that happens every single week. And what we try to do here is capture the things that matter the most and distill it down for you in a nice, digestible package. Delicious, you might say. So check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And be sure you catch episode 396 of Linux Unplugged. We get the inside story of how Linux made it into JPL and eventually onto the surface of Mars. As for us here on Earth, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.